Hi, I'm Jamal Simmons. This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, where we highlight the strength of our city, the spirit of our people, and share your stories of compassion. Welcome back to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I am so glad you've joined the podcast today. Like always, I have an amazing guest joining. And while all of our shows feature important topics, today's show is especially timely given all of the attention Las Vegas is receiving in the news. Few things are as polarizing as our subject today, so I want to be clear that this show is not affiliated with any political party and is not endorsing any candidates, but we are certainly going to talk about how compassion is recognizable in the political landscape. This is an episode you are going to love. So tweet or post or whatever social media method you use, share this episode right now and use the hashtag CompassionateLV. My guest today is none other than interviewer, political analyst, speaker, and my family, Mr. Jamal Simmons. Jamal is a unique interviewer and voice on the American political and media landscape. He worked for U.S. President Bill Clinton and was an advisor to President Barack Obama's historic 2008 campaign and White House. His real-world political experience and work with the U.S. government, international NGOs, Fortune 500 companies, and early-stage startups give him keen insights. Jamal's appearances on every major cable news network, radio, and online give him wide audience reach. Currently, he can be found each week on Hill.TV and regularly on NPR's Here and Now. A rare voice of reason, Jamal has credibility among political, social justice, and corporate decision makers. Jamal got his start in on-air political analysis on the Fox News Channel in the mid-2000s and became a fixture on CNN during the 2008 presidential campaign advocating for Barack Obama. CBS News hired him as their in-house Democratic analyst during the 2010 midterms, appearing regularly on the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric and CBS This Morning. Since then, Jamal appears regularly on MSNBC programs such as AM Joy and Hardball with Chris Matthews. In 2016, he was a frequent guest on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos and still appears regularly on CBS Face the Nation. Today, he is here with you on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. So let's get into it. All right, Jamal, thank you so much for making some time for us today and for joining the Compassionate Las Vegas podcast all the way from Washington, D.C. So my first question is a hard one. It's a heavy hitter. It's loaded. Who are you and how do you define compassion? Well, first of all, thank you, Chris, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to even be asked to do something like this. Uh, and I'm glad you're getting this podcast off the ground and it's moving. I think people are going to really enjoy it. These are the kind of topics that everybody, you know, people think about. They don't always necessarily talk about them out loud, but it's kind of something that rumbles around inside of our um, brains and so uh, in our hearts. So uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. Um, you know, I got involved in politics really right after college. And um, the reason why I did was because 
I wanted to be able to have an impact on the world. And I, I thought a little bit about becoming a college professor. And so that was the way I thought that I was gonna be able to do that. And then I started uh, working on political campaigns and I saw the impact of how, um, not just the policies that politicians are able to put in place, but really how like the, the inspirational part of, of politics can have a way of moving people to do something bigger. So I worked for Bill Clinton when I first got started and pe you know, younger people, it's hard to remember, but Bill Clinton was sort of the Barack Obama of his era. Like yeah, he, he, was. he was like this young candidate. He had this wife who was professional. That was very different, you know, back in the nineties to have a wife who worked outside the home. Um, they had this young daughter. He was on MTV. All these celebrities were around all the time. And so, um, uh, one of the things I saw was how people would react when they would come in contact with them. And then I was with them when they were at the White House and the administration in D.C. And we would bring people to the White House. And, and the fact that you could take, you know, some young person and take them to the White House and they would see that and become kind of inspired by it. Um, and then, you know, I was in D.C. all the way until Barack Obama was president and I helped Barack Obama win his election. And so I spent a lot of time at the White House and doing some informal advising of the administration. And so I would see... Um, particularly the way young people of color would see Barack Obama and we really moved by him. I mean, one of the most inspirational pictures of President Obama is one where he's sort of leaning his head down in front of a little boy who's touching his hair because he wanted to see if it was like his. Um, and you think like, you know, I grew up my entire life before, uh, I was in my 30s before there was an African-American president and never really thought necessarily there would be one. And all these kids who grow up in an era where having a black president doesn't seem to be something that exceptional. It seems to be pretty normal. So um, when I think about compassion, um, what I think about is having, it's not just the processes of government and politics that matter, it's the people who are in it who matter. And so as um, the people who help execute the laws or um, doing things not just because they are uh, expedient or they're the thing that you're supposed to do, but doing them because they're the right thing to do mm -hmm. and because they're the right thing for people and they're going to make somebody's life better. To me, that's what matters the most in politics. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that background is so important. I love that picture that you mentioned. It still you know, gives me goosebumps when I think about it, how impactful it was just to see someone like yourself in that position. I want to back up for just a moment, and you mentioned compassion in politics, but how do you actually define compassion? So um, I think about it a lot with empathy. Um, uh, we have to be able, we don't have to do anything. Um, hopefully one is able <laughs> to um, put yourself in the place of another person and see what is happening in their life and how that thing is hurtful or matters to them and then trying to either help make a bad situation better, um, a good situation great, or um, if they're having pain, maybe even offer some comfort because you can't necessarily always get, get rid of the pain. Um, and sometimes it's not really the right thing to do to get rid of the pain, but, um, but helping them see the light outside of whatever they're going through to whatever the next thing is. You know, um, I have a saying in my life about embrace the sunrise, um, and that, you know, if you see a picture of the sun sitting on the sunset, sitting on the horizon, um, you don't necessarily know if that sun is going up or it's going down, right? It could be sunrise or it could be sunset. But um, 
unlike mother nature, which tells the earth which way to go and the sun, if it's going up or going down, in our lives, we have uh, the ability to decide what we want to see happen. God gave us free will. And so we got to embrace this as a sunrise. We got to look at it as a place. And when the sun is rising, it's not a, it's not kind of a, um, it's not kind of a Pollyanna thing. It's like the sun rises. It's the day is beginning. It's an opportunity to do work. It's an opportunity to make something better than it was the day before. So for me, compassion is one of those things where you want to make someone else's life better than it was before, not just be focused on your own. I love it. And so we're going to hashtag that embrace the sunrise. How about that? I love it. So I kind of want to dive into, I guess, maybe some more sensitive subjects. And one of the reasons I really wanted you on the podcast instead of just one of our local strategists or something here is because these matters are so close to home Mm -hmm. that I don't know if our audience could really hear one of their officials say Mm -hmm. some of these things because politics is complex. Governing is complex. Can you just make kind of these these situations simple for us? Make it plain. How do you govern when there are no good choices? <laughs> you know, the truth is that is that's really like fundamentally um, the art of particularly high level governance. You know, President Obama used to say all the time that by the time a decision arrived at his desk, all the easy stuff was done, right? They only left the, the big hard things to do for him. And I think that's true of most leaders of any organization not just a president, but if you run an organization every day, I've run companies, I've run nonprofits with people. I I advise leaders in my um, uh, consulting life, that's what I did, I advise leaders from like T.D. Jakes, um, you know, the pastor, to, you know, presidents, to people who run organizations, companies. And the easy decisions get made fast, right? Like somebody can make an easy decision, the cashier at the grocery store can make a decision about what to do with the person who just spilled milk on the on the counter, right? That's not a decision that makes it to the CEO. The, the decision that gets to the CEO or the branch manager is the one that's hard that they can't figure out on their own. So um, I think I think you do think about it from the perspective of uh, what's best for the person involved, pe- people who are involved. What's best for the organization. And if you're the leader of a political organization, especially for my city, my county, my country, right? Um, and sometimes those things are not together, like they're in conflict. So the thing that, but your responsibility as a leader of a group, whether you're the, a parent in a family or you're a, um, a leader of an of organization, is to do what's best for the whole. Um, that you can't always divorce yourself from that. Sometimes it is, the right thing to do to risk, take a risk on behalf of the whole for an individual. Um, but that's not always true. And so sometimes you, what you have to do is kind of take the pain of saying, there's going to be an individual who's hurt here, um, but the, all of us are gonna be better off in the end. I, I mean, I'll just give you an example. Um, it's like if somebody gets, uh, uh, somebody gets, uh, uh, taken hostage in a country, right? You may risk some group of soldiers and military people to go rescue that person, knowing the 10 people you send to go rescue could also be in danger, but it's more important for us to get that one person back, or at least try to get that one person back, even though we're gonna risk a larger group of people. The needs of the one sometimes outweigh the needs of the many. Wow. Um, 
but sometimes the needs of the many have to be pre preeminent. And so you decide, you know, you decide, um, uh, you know, you got one person in your family who maybe they need a thousand dollars, right. To like solve a problem. But if you take a thousand dollars and give it to that person, you also need to pay a thousand dollars to pay your mortgage. Right. So you can't have your family be without a home so that you can help one other person solve, you know, a problem they have that costs a thousand dollars. They have a bill that's due a credit card bill or something, a tax bill that's due that's a thousand dollars. So they're going to have some short term pain, but, it's maybe not right for you to like have your family be homeless in order to solve their short-term problem. And that's the thing I think as being a leader, you sometimes have to make a tough call that you can't do something for the, for the individual because you've got to be worried about everybody. So what I'm hearing is really you have to make sure your home is secure before you can really extend compassion to others because compassion is something you kind of do, right? Yeah, you know, I did a, uh, I, you know, I have a podcast uh, called, or it's a, it's a, uh, I, Instagram TV and Facebook um, show called This Is FYI, and I, uh, I interviewed the other day somebody who was a therapist, and there, and they had a good example on this. They said, you know, it's like when you're on an airplane, and the one thing they tell you when you get on the airplane is in case of emergency, you know, the uh, uh, oxygen mask will drop from the top of the uh, plane. Put your oxygen mask on first before you go to put the oxygen mask on the person, help the person who's next to you, right? You can't really be of service to that many other people if you also are the one who is in jeopardy. And so I think you have to find that balance of, you know, sometimes there are moments for heroism, right? And you're willing to sacrifice that, but in general, you've got to secure yourself so that you have the ability to help other people. And you can do both of those things sometimes at the same time. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive for sure. In fact, one of the things that I work on helping people to better understand is a lot of times what's best for the individual is having a stable collective. Yeah. That brings me to my next question, which is how do we balance individual liberty with collective compassion? (laughs) This is like, you're like taking me all the way back to like, philosophy class <laughs> right like i'm a philosopher are, what can i say <laughs> these, these are the big these are the big questions i mean there's that fundamental thing and um certainly in 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 broad democratic philosophy which is um your right in at the tip of my nose right so you can do whatever you want until it begins to impact me at which point then we have to have some conversation and negotiation so you can swing your hands wildly which is fine you're human But if you're swinging your arms, hits me in the nose, that's a problem because now I'm negatively impacted. Um, So people do have this liberty or the the, the idea of uh, you can't scream, you can't scream fire in a crowded movie theater, right? Because you're going to endanger everybody who starts to stampede toward the door. If there is no fire, you should not be screaming fire and causing that kind of kind of damage. So I think in general, in economics, they call it, you know, these negative externalities, right? Like you can have a house and you can do whatever you want with your house. Nobody cares what you do on the inside of your house, right? Your house is fine. But if you live on a block where all the houses are gray and white and you paint your house purple and green, your purple and green house is going to have an impact on everybody who lives on your block because now what was normal about your block 
now has or what was consistent about your block is now in inconsistent. Now, people may decide, oh, it's fun to have a purple and green house in our block. You know, have at it. But you probably can't make that decision by yourself. It's a decision you have to make, uh, you know, with other people. Here so in I Vegas, we know all about that because we have HOAs that govern every detail of <laughs> yeah. how we live. So we totally get that example. Totally. So, I mean, that's the thing where, you know, maybe the part of that is, um, you know, you can kind of have your personal liberty, but when it starts to encroach on other people, that's the place where we kind of have um, society or, or even government. Um, and, you know, Thomas Paine, uh, who's one of the founding father thinkers of the country. Um, and Thomas Paine wrote 300 years ago, almost now, 250 years ago, that, you know, society is kind of the, is, is a product of human um, uh, benefit or human uh, benevolence, right? Government is a product of human failure, right? So we come together um, in society because there are things we want to accomplish together, right? I'm a farmer, you build houses, somebody else takes care of children, somebody else can do something else well. And so each one of us does the thing that we do well and collectively we're all a better society. Government is the kind of thing um, in this thinking that comes about when we have a failure, right? Well, so society can't solve a problem. It's to punish somebody who commits a crime. It's to make a decision that we can't work out on our own, but, uh, or it's too big of a decision to work on our own, right? A decision between, you know, a decision between four people on a block or 10 people on a block could probably be resolved in that block. A decision between a thousand people in the city probably can't be resolved by just a conversation. You need something else to come in. There's like a failure of the collective to reach a decision. So we have to come up with some rules that govern our behavior so that um, we don't end up in fistfights on the street, <laughs> right? And so in that way, there's a way for us to come up with a better decision as a group because we've decided, and, and it's representative government. So it's, it's of the, our block picks one person to go, your block picks one person to go, and instead of a thousand people making a decision, now you have 15 people making a decision. And that's a, a much easier process to manage than a thousand people trying to hash it out on their own. Yeah, for sure. So how does compassion play into that? Can politics actually be compassionate? Is that even possible? Hmm. Um, the, the best politics have to be uh, compassionate at some level, right? I mean, I think it's a lot of what we look for in leaders. We want, I think people want um, strength, uh, they want vision, um, but they also want compassion, right? Um, I say like a lot of times they want leaders who are exceptional, but also accessible, right? Like you, you kind of want to feel like this person is stronger, better, more attractive, like whatever. There's some part of it that you want them to be better at than you. Celebrities, they're like, they're more attractive. They've got better acting skills. But then we also like it when a celebrity's playing with a dog, right? <laughs> or like a celebrity is like cuddling a child because we want them to feel accessible. Uh, and I think in politics, you wanna do the same thing. You wanna, you, sometimes you gotta make tough calls that are gonna be really hard, but then also um, you wanna go in and hug people, you know, who are having tragedy. Um, or, you know, we just had the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing 25 years ago. And, you know, one of the things that I remember from that with President Clinton was he was able to go in to that community 
And I mean, literally sometimes you just hug people and just hold their hands, you know, you want them to know like it's going to, it's going to be okay. And so we want leaders who are going to be both compassionate, I think in a small way and compassionate in a larger way. And that like Katrina happens, we see people who are in jeopardy and they're dying. We are going to marshal the forces of America, of our country to go and rescue these people who are in jeopardy in this community. Um, and I think when that doesn't happen, or even let's make it smaller, we, we both grew up in Detroit. Um, if there's a snowstorm in the city and we can shovel out our sidewalks, maybe we can shovel out our street, but we can't shovel out every major street in the city. So the city has to come and do it. And what you find is when, when mayors don't shovel street, city streets in snowstorms, they are, they, that is the number one thing that can kill a politician is not taking care of people and rescuing them at a time of need. Absolutely. That is so true. Of course, we know nothing about snow here in Vegas because <laughs> right. it was shut down. So <laughs> I want to ask this and kind of turn the conversation a different direction for a moment. How can we as the governed, as the citizens, as the people show more compassion for our elected officials? Um, I think the thing, the thing to remember, you know, again, I've been around politics my whole adult life and I was around it even as a kid because, you know, my family was involved in it, is um, these people are, they're people, you know, they're people just like we're people. They have things they're afraid of, things they hope for, people they love, crises that are happening in their lives. Sometimes um, there's not always a big conspiracy that's taking place. Sometimes people never, someone said to me, never underestimate uh uh the amount of human um i'm gonna just say this a nice way screw-ups <laughs> <laughs> you know like people just screw up sometimes you know they just like they make the wrong decision the wrong call it doesn't mean they shouldn't be held accountable for it and by that i mean take responsibility um, maybe apologize and then take some action to fix the problem that you've caused Right. Um, and then maybe it's so big that we don't want you to take action because we need some, to swap you out and put somebody else in to do it. Um, but we shouldn't necessarily look at them as being bad and evil people. There are really bad people who are up to doing really bad things and they're using the political system to do that. But not everybody in politics is doing that. And not everybody who makes a decision you don't like is doing that. And that's why I think having a broad Look at the breadth of the decision making that they're doing and see whether or not over time they tend to be trying to operate from a good place. I'll tell you, I mean, George W. Bush is somebody, I think Katrina was a really bad moment for him and it kind of ended it for him. But I think in general, George W. Bush seemed like a good person. He just made some bad decisions. And I think that's very different than maybe the current president. I've been trying to keep from being political, but the current president who it just doesn't seem like he's based in any values that any of us would recognize as the kind of things that we would want the young people in our lives to emulate. Mm -hmm. um, generosity, kindness, uh, compassion, um, thoughtfulness, uh, uh, being able to see beyond your own personal need at a moment and see what the broader, broader group needs. I mean, those are the kind of things we're used to seeing from leaders. And I think um, that's what people are looking for in general. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the challenges that this podcast seeks to address. It feels as if the world is kind of going that direction. 
because mm-hmm. you see those type of protests online and those are the loudest voices. So we really seek to amplify hope and share the stories of compassion because this is what's really happening. This is the majority here. So how can we bridge even in those conversations and, and be less polarizing? Of course, we know that just demonizing the other side simply, first of all, it's not who we are as a people, but yeah. it also doesn't work. So how can we have these conversations from a political spectrum where, where we do move the ball forward? You know, I have been wrestling with this recently um, prior to the uh, COVID outbreak. Um, I would have told you that I thought social media was going to be the death of society. <laughs> um, and that's a new uh, new place for me. But I think the way it's been hijacked by people and it's been used um, to, you know, to. It's like it's like social media in many ways has been bringing out the worst parts of us um, and giving it giving a global platform for all the things about humanity that we're trying to get past. But now we see in this crisis, it's like social media, like this conversation we're having right now, technology is facilitating goodness, right? This is facilitating families being able to get together and have talks that they you know, didn't have. It's facilitating, um, you know, last night we were on Instagram listening to two musicians try to have, you know, a kind of a fun battle back and forth uh, with each other you know, um, DJs who are playing party sets and you find out 100,000, 200, 300,000 people are all listening to the same music at the same time and enjoying themselves. So, you know, I think now we're seeing the, the benefit of it. But what I'll say is there are people who do hijack technology to try to do bad things. And we look for somebody to police it. But what I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to the conclusion is that there is no police. Right. There, there won't be a police officer to come in and say, you stop doing bad things because you can't act fast enough. So it's almost like what we need are benevolent gangs to counter the malevolent gangs that exist. You know, I those of that. us who are rooted in faith or rooted in some broader sense of purpose and, 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 and compassion have to go and root and group together with other people who have the same values and philosophy and we have to go enter public spaces and spread love you know as the word would say like we got to spread love and compassion in a new way um that's not just listening to letting the uh, letting the bad actors have the floor like we got to fight for that microphone and take it back and then use it i mean think about what dr king was doing um in the 60s um it was it was um it was based in love but it was aggressive it was in your face he made people confront things they didn't want to confront. He used the technology of the time he was in and said, television is the new technology that's moving people. Let's create images that are going to bring out compassion and love and force people to face up to um, the bad things in our society that they want to ignore. And I'm going to use these images to make people face up to that. And maybe that's the role of compassionate actors in this moment is to not be not sit back and just you know kind of wrestle but do things like what you're doing where you're actually entering the space to put more goodness out into the world and and take away some of the negativity yeah i appreciate that and it's it's so important and i i go back to dr king quite frequently and you know my instagram feed is full of quotes from him and all of that because he he did seem to get it even as a pastor, he still understood, like, I've got to be vocal in these spaces too. 
because mm-hmm. what happens in the government affects my people and not just his people, meaning his congregation, but his people as the human race. So I think that that's, that's important to, to highlight. You reminded me of Marianne you Williamson. You just said something about, um, you know, this idea about faith. And, you know, one of the things that's happened is, um, is you can't go to church, right? Yeah. You can't be in these big collectives. But now we go to church online and it's almost like um, that used to kind of have like a little bit of a stigma, right? Like if you were at Bedside Baptist or, <laughs> you know, the, the Church of Seely and, C, you know, St. Seely and Serta, like you would get, uh, <laughs> you would, people would kind of clown you a little bit, right? But in this moment, um, for the people who don't necessarily get up and make it to the to the chapel on, on Sunday morning, we're all kind of having this experience where we're, we're finding ways to engage and have uh, these faith experiences, even though we're in our own in our own homes. It's almost like, in a way, um, you read stories about the early Christian church, or even like um, the Jewish church under times where they were the Jewish synagogues under times where they were under assault. People are like huddling together to like nurture their faith in a way, and it's probably making that faith stronger because instead of it being so big. It's like really small and intimate, and it gives us a chance to kind of connect in a, in a different way. So, this again is one of these moments where I feel like technology is actually facilitating something good and not just amplifying the bad. Absolutely, that's a great point, and it's it's hard for me because I I do need that that physical touch, those hugs, and all of that. And of course, you know, there are the physiological benefits that come from that. Mm-hmm. And I am so grateful to have this technology to still be connected in new ways with, you know, a family Zoom every Sunday and things like that. It's amazing the things that are happening because of it. But uh, one of your earlier points reminded me of Marianne Williamson and her uh, candidacy for president or or Mm -hmm. nomination. Talk a little bit about that because she was a voice that I thought um, was unique in the sense that she didn't have a traditional Christian perspective. And most of our presidents, probably all, have been Christian. But she still spoke from a place of love and really brought some new conversation to the table that we're still having today. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so I will tell you, I, uh, I, I know Marianne a little bit. Um, uh, I talked to her right before she started to run for president. And she actually gave my son a, a little lovey, like a bunny that he sleeps with every night. He still, he still has it. Um, and she's the real, she's a real deal in this sense, which is that I think she really believes what she says. She, she wasn't into running for president to try to play politics. She really wanted to like spread love, like to put this in there. She believed that we as a society, um, were, you know, we needed a reckoning. Like we needed to kind of reckon with the demons amongst us, you know, in our, in our psyches. And I think to get out of her, her head for a second, but I think that, that this is right. And, and there's a part of me that wonders, you know, from just a theological, cosmic, whatever perspective, this is kind of like the universe fighting back <laughs> against us, right? If this COVID is kind of the universe fighting back because it's making us, um, take time to think about it. Even like the earth fighting back, right? Because we're questions is climate change. And now like, you know, airplane travels dropped 80%. Factory outputs have gone away. You can see, you know, in Venice, they say that there are fish in the canals. In China, you can see 
uh, Beijing from outer space for the first time in decades. So in some ways, it's like it's forcing us to all stop and have some sort of a reckoning uh, with wherever we are. And so the question becomes next is what do we do next, right? Like, okay, if everything lifts tomorrow, what do we do? Do we just go back to the way we were? Or do we try to take this time to think about this, you know, what Dr. King would call the benevolent community? Like, do we try to create the world that it is that we want to see exist? Um, and I think that this is the moment to start pushing those questions. Like, okay, what, what do we have? When we come back, what kind of economy do we have? How do we interact with each other? What are the systems that we're going to that we're going to put in place? So, hopefully, hopefully we will spend more time doing that. Yeah, that would be great. And I think that you're you're right. It's this is our moment to really make some radical shifts and not just some incremental. Okay, we can fix this, we can patch this, but we can really actually bring our system to 2020, like this is, this is not the ice age anymore, you know, so we can do that. Um, I wanna thank you for your time, for your insight, your um, wisdom in this area. Before we go, I want you to tell us, cause you mentioned you had a podcast of your own. Tell us where yeah. we can find you and how we can get connected. So if you go to Instagram, uh, my page on Instagram is uh, at Real Jamal Simmons. That's the same one on Facebook, Real Jamal Simmons. Um, and it, it, the podcast is called This Is FYI. So it's hashtag This Is FYI, uh, but you can go to either one of you can go to my pages on Instagram or Facebook and find it. But everything is hashtag This Is FYI. So uh, hopefully people take a look at it. And I just call it they're short conversations with people who know things. Um, so, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> people have questions, and uh, I have questions, and so I ask people that I know to come talk about them and tell us what they know. Hopefully, it's useful to people. I love it. So in summary, how are you embodying compassion in this world today? You know, I try to be, um, uh, I try to be generous with my time and my attention. Um, and my time, frankly, is the most, um, is the, is the most valuable thing that I have right now because, you know, I've got two little kids, I've got a wife, I got jobs that are demanding, but when I when I'm out and I meet people, when I was in college, happened to me the first time. I ran into somebody who was a civil rights leader that I studied in school, and I, and I went up to him and I said I was super excited and I was like, "Hey, good to meet you. Uh, you know, I'll go to Morehouse College and I study you." Blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me and he said, "I don't have time for this right now." And he turns around, oh. right? And it was one of the most impactful moments of my life because I vowed that I would never be that person, <laughs> right? And so I really do. You can't always spend 30 minutes with somebody, but it doesn't take you like more than a minute to say, it's very nice to meet you too. I'm running something else, but tell me like, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, tell me what you're up to. It's great. I I'm sure, you know, I hope you're going to be successful. Like, you know, send me a note on Instagram or something and let's, you know, I hope you follow. Like, just say something and then keep going, right? Like, it's two minutes. It's two minutes. You can keep going. You can keep moving. Um, and so, um, I think it's just a level, level, level of being considerate of where other people are. And I just remember so vividly wanting to get somewhere. I remember so vividly not having money, 
not having access to people in power, not having a chance to uh, do the things in my career that I thought I wanted to do and wanting to do those things. I was working in a restaurant, you know, bussing tables and hosting. and do, Like I remember and thinking, dreaming about what I wanted to be. And so I always try to put myself back in the perspective of that person, you know, that person inside of me who was trying to get somewhere um, whenever I encounter somebody who I think is also trying to get somewhere. You know, what would I have wanted somebody to be? How would I want them to be? Um, so that's just a small way, I guess, of doing it. You know, the broader ways are, you know, the work I do, the people I work with, the kind of consulting that I did in my past, like the, the conversations I try to bring to the forefront in the in media. But I think we also have to do it in small ways, as well as, you know, we try to be helpful in church to people and all that stuff. So. So you just gave us a great compassionate practice to try for ourselves this week, which is just give someone a moment of your time and attention. You never yeah. know what impact that can have. Yeah. Again, thank you for being on the show today and enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Good luck with this. This is going to be an amazing thing. And um, keep sending me the notes so I can follow. Sure thing. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I want to extend my sincere appreciation and gratitude to the Jameson Foundation in partnership with the Moonrich Group for making this podcast possible. I also want to thank you, the listener, for your support as well. Here on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast, we are highlighting your stories of compassion. There are so many amazing things happening and so many people have inspirational stories to share. So if you are one of those people, this is your platform. Email me at will at winningwithwill.com. Use the subject line compassionate LV and let me know your story. I'd love to have you on the show or to feature your story in a future episode. Also, for those of you who leave a great compassionate practice with your five-star review, be sure to check out future episodes because you may just be featured on the show. Today, Jamal shared hashtag embrace the sunrise and also the powerful practice of showing compassion through spending time with someone. What have you done or what are you doing to show compassion? Be sure to include it in your review so that I can highlight you. Your rating and review help others to find this podcast and to further the mission to make Las Vegas a more compassionate place to live, work, and play. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We are also on YouTube, so if you want to see the podcast while you listen, you can find us there at Compassionate LV Podcast. Love and compassion aren't luxuries, they are necessities. Remember that you are not just a drop in an ocean, you are the ocean in a drop. Be well, my friends. Thank you for listening, and I will see you again on the next episode of Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. <laughs>